The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Let's everybody stand. We're going to turn to the Gospel of John, as you can see on the screen there, John chapter 12, and starting with verse 12, reading through verse 19, and we'll read the Word of God together. And there is a Bible right in front of you on the chair if you need a Bible as well. John chapter 12, starting with verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you saw on Slack, um, uh, we are hitting pause and working through the Gospel of Luke. Today, this Good Friday, and then on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, as you just heard, John 12, as we look at a sermon that I'm just simply titling, Save Now. Save Now. You're going to hear in a couple of minutes that the word Hosanna, that is what that word means. It's an exclamatory kind of phrase. It's people saying to the Lord, we need salvation, we need it now, and we are asking you to save now. This morning, what you're going to see is this triumphal entry idea as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem you're going to notice this, that Jesus is the expectation-reversing king that we need. That's the main idea this morning. God is in the business of doing these remarkable reversals. A lot of the times, that's the way you see him operate in our lives. He comes and he accomplishes that which we just wouldn't expect, or he accomplishes that that we hope for and expect, but he does it in ways that we could just never possibly imagine. My hunch is that in most of our Bibles, the bold title right above verse 12 is the phrase, the triumphal entry. But if you notice, there's a lot of non-triumphalness to the entry of Jesus. Riding on a donkey, lowly, no ticker tape, no heading off to a palace where he's going to rule on a throne that has his name stamped on it or these sorts of things. But there's something remarkably reversing about the triumph that we're going to see Jesus accomplish in a matter of five days when Jesus goes to the cross on Good Friday. And so when you concentrate and think about what is taking place with this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, riding on a young donkey, I think John wants us to see that Jesus is somebody. And who is he? He is the expectation-reversing king. 
And this is truly what you and what I need. We need this kind of king. So as we always do, we're going to pause. We're going to pray. My encouragement would be this. Look left, look right, and pray for the people that are next to you. Ask for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to see their need for this kind of king who comes riding in lowly on a donkey, accomplishing that which we absolutely need. And just maybe your prayer is as simple as this. Holy Spirit, would you help these people see Jesus? And I think you will come to see is that that is a prayer Jesus delights to answer. That's a prayer the Spirit delights to answer. Amen? So let's do this together. Father, we want to see you glorified. Jesus, we want to see you magnified. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking you to do this in our midst this morning. The prayer is simple. The prayer is sweet. Jesus, open our eyes to see you. Open our minds to understand the scriptures before us. Lord, draw us. In your sovereign power, draw us to embrace with heart, soul, mind, and strength the Jesus we need, the Jesus found here right before us in the Scriptures. The rescuing King, the humble King, the saving King, the expectation-reversing King. Open our eyes to see our need for Him. Holy Spirit, You have the power to pierce darkness, to pull scales from eyes, to draw sin-dead sinners into the light, and to repent of sin and believe in Jesus who is the life and light of men. Holy Spirit, do this. It's in your name, King Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to fire up uh, your, the imagination machine in your mind. And here's, here's what I want you to do as you're stoking your imagination into flame here. I want you to think of a, a good leader. I want you to think of like a Prince Charming kind of character. And here's the question. When you think of a good leader, what are some of those qualities that immediately begin to come to mind? Like, what do you want this person to look like? How do you want this person to act? What, what is this Prince Charming character look like in your mind's eye? If you were to say, hey, someone is paying you a lot of money, write us a story about good versus evil. There's going to be a hero that comes in, swoops in, saves the day. What is sort of the, the immediate mental picture of this person when, when, they, when they come into your mind's eye? For most of us, my hunch is it took very little effort for us to be able to quickly drift to this sort of picture-perfect kind of hero. Right? Someone who is tall, dark, and handsome. My guess is most of us didn't go to the short, ugly, bald guy, right? Um, for those of us that might fit that description a little too much, that's no dig, no dig on us. But my guess is we don't, we don't really see that. What we see is the tall, dark, handsome. Someone who comes in, someone who has strength, someone who displays that strength, someone who everyone looks at and goes, this is the guy who's going to get the job done, someone who defeats the bad guy, someone who wins. The popular expectation of this Prince Charming mental picture that comes into our mind, this, this hero is this leader who's going to show up and rescue the people and give the people what they want. 
Now, if we were to hop in our time machine and we were to travel back into the scene that was before us, the scene that Greg just read, this triumphal entry scene in John 12, what you need to know is that we would discover that this hero, this good leader, this one who's going to come, this rescuer, and what this rescuer is going to do is he's going to rescue the people, and he's going to bring the kind of rescue and deliver the kind of people. He's going to be tall, he's going to be dark, he's going to be handsome, he's going to get the job done, he's going to display strength. What you need to know is that these kind of expectations that you quickly went to are the exact same kind of expectations that would have been floating around in the mind's eye of the crowds that we see in John chapter 12. If you notice in verse 12, the Apostle John tells us that a large crowd was in Jerusalem. And specifically, this large crowd had come to celebrate the feast, the feast being specifically the feast of the Passover. And that's why there were a swelling crowd there in Jerusalem. If you remember back to when we were preaching through the book of Exodus, there was a handful of feasts, celebration holidays that required all who were in Israel, if they were able, to travel to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this feast. And the Passover feast was one of these. And history tells us, if you go back and read historical accounts of the times in Jerusalem when the Passover feast was being celebrated, the city could easily swell to multiple hundreds of thousands of people as people who were uh, across the nation of Israel would swarm into Jerusalem. This is the kind of idea that's packed into this large crowd phrase that John is giving us. The Passover what was it celebrating? It was celebrating this idea of God delivering His people from death in Egypt. It was the tenth plague. If you remember back in the book of Exodus, death angel coming, if you slaughter the lamb and you put the blood on the doorpost, death will pass over you. If you're trusting in God's plan of redemption in this moment, you will not die. You will live. You will find the life you were designed to have if you trust in God's plan of salvation. This is wrapped up in this idea of Passover. And this feast was directly linked to this idea of the Exodus. Right on the heels of the Passover being celebrated, the people left. And this Exodus idea talks about God rescuing His people from slavery. So thus, to be in Jerusalem in this large crowd, there to celebrate what John calls the feast, the feast of Passover, is to recognize that you were to be surrounded by high expectation. There were people who were in a certain mindset. We are here celebrating God's rescue of people from death. We're celebrating God's deliverance of people from slavery. The air would have been thick with hope as hearts yearned for a king like David. And all the promises that God had made throughout Israel's history that there is going to come this David-like king, a son of David, who will come and get the job done. Who will satisfy the heart's yearnings and our heart's longings. 
A king like David who is going to come and bring a Passover-type deliverance that we truly need. King Saul couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. The sons that flowed out of Solomon, they couldn't do it. King after king had fallen and failed. We need the perfect king, the king of kings who can show up and actually bring the Passover-type deliverance from death and slavery to sin that we need. In other words, we need a king tall, is what they would have been thinking. A king dark. A king handsome who would march into Jerusalem, perched on his war horse, ready to lead the forces of Israel and toppling the tyranny of Rome. Because at this time when Jesus was doing his ministry, Rome was in charge. And they were oppressive. And they had been oppressive for a while, and they wanted some kind of delivery. And so they're looking for this David-like king to come and bring this kind of salvation, this kind of deliverance. If you were to go ask any Jew in this large crowd, why are you here? What do you want? What are you expecting? What are you longing for? Like, don't fool around, cut to the chase, explain to me, please, as you're here celebrating this feast, which is designed to celebrate God's deliverance from death and slavery, what do you want? They would say, this is what we want. We want salvation. We want saved. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm longing for. But notice that what the people want stands in sharp contrast to what the people need. The kind of rescuer they want is tall, dark, and handsome. Someone who's going to rush in on the white stallion, the war horse, and start eradicating Rome's oppressive tyranny so that they can be saved, set free. But the rescuer they need, the Isaiah the prophet tells us, had no beauty about him, had no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him, says the prophet. The rescuer that these nameless faces in the crowd wanted would be a rescuer, a savior who would come and take life in order to save from Rome's oppression. But the rescuer they need was about to actually lay down his own life in order to save not from Rome's oppression, but to save from sin's oppression. You see, everything about this scene beckons us, begs us to come and behold the remarkable reversal of King Jesus. Jesus is the expectation-reversing king. Notice, we're going to say it several times, it was not wrong for the crowd to have this expectation, we need a Savior to save us. They are fully right in expecting and wanting and desiring that. But notice that their expectation, it was twisted a little bit. 
They were too narrow. They were aiming too low. They were thinking our only and biggest problem is external, and Jesus was coming to see that you need to push past the external and punch into the eternal because I have come not to save from Rome's oppression. I have come to deliver you and save you from sin's oppression. That's what we see in point number one, the remarkable reversal of King Jesus. When Jesus comes riding in and people are singing Hosanna and John is reminding us that this is fulfilling prophecy out of Zechariah chapter 9, we are witnessing the remarkable reversal of King Jesus, verses 12 through 15. And the reason why I use this phrase, remarkable reversal, because that is what we see front and center when Jesus enters in to Jerusalem. In the triumphal entry of heaven's king, John is making reference to two specific pieces of verses, and when you go back to their context, everything about Psalm 118 and everything about Zechariah 9 is God doing something in ways that you would just never imagine. And Jesus is showing up saying, I am fulfilling these things, and I am bringing with me this remarkable reversal. So in your Bible, look starting there at verse 12. Notice what the Apostle John wrote. He wrote this, the next day the crowd, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the Passover feast, they heard something. And what they heard was that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And notice what they refer to Jesus as, even the King of Israel. They look at Jesus and they're noticing that there's something kingly about him. But see, notice this, one of the outstanding observations to make in verses 12 and 13 is this, is that King Jesus brings salvation, but he's going to bring salvation not like the people were expecting. They are right to look at Jesus and say, Hosanna, save now, save us now. We need you to save us. But Jesus is going to remarkably reverse their expectations and bring them in five days' time the kind of salvation that they weren't quite expecting and thinking they needed. So the people see Jesus as the saving king, and rightly so. Everything about their words, their hopes, their longings, their expectations, in a sense, it's biblical and it's very accurate, actually. They aren't pulling this Hosanna cry of their heart out of thin air. It's actually straight out of the book of Psalms. It's right out of Psalm 118. Upon Jesus entering Jerusalem, all that he had been doing, all that he had been teaching for the past three years of his active ministry life are all now funneling down to this point in time where King Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's coming riding on a young donkey, fulfilling Scripture spoken by the prophet Zechariah. All of this is funneling down into this key moment where the word on the heart's and minds and lips of people is salvation, please, now. They're stitching all this together. Hosanna, they are screaming out. Blessed is he, and they're pointing at Jesus in this moment. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is, this is who is in front of us right now. The importance of them going to Psalm 18 cannot be overstated. A big part of celebrating the Passover feast 
was the singing of psalms. It was remembering what God did in delivering them out of the exodus. And a lot of that comes down to going back into the book of Psalms and they would sing Psalms to commemorate and to remember the salvation that God brought to their forefathers. There's specifically a series of Psalms that often goes by this name, the Egyptian Hallel. That word Hallel just means praise, right? So when we say Hallelujah... What are we saying? We're praising you right now, God. So this Egyptian Hallel idea goes back to the idea of God's people being delivered from death, being delivered out of slavery in Egypt. And Psalms 113 through 118 would often be sung during the Passover celebration. Psalm 113 and 114 it would be sung before the Passover feast. You would eat and enjoy the Passover feast, retelling the story of Exodus and God's salvation. And then when it was all done, you would sing Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 18. In Mark's gospel, when they get done doing this and Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, Mark tells us that after they had sung some songs, he went out into the garden. They were singing Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 18. That's what was going on. So when you go to Psalm 118, what you begin to realize is that as the crowd is reaching back into 118 and he's pulling these, they're pulling these truths forward, what they're doing is decidedly dipping into a psalm that is a psalm all about victory. It's all about this king-like figure in Psalm 118 who experiences God's remarkable reversal as Yahweh transformed what looked like to everybody else pure and absolute defeat, but Yahweh shows up and brings about this remarkable reversal and transforms this king-like figure's defeat into pure and absolute triumph. It's a psalm celebrating the fact that it is God who did this, we did not do this. Everyone else had wrote us off as defeated. But then God showed up, dumped everything on its head, and turned defeat into triumph. And so if you think about it, this is exactly what God did at the Passover in Exodus. So it just makes pure and absolute sense why God's people would bring about Psalm 118 and stitch it together with Psalms 113, 14, 15, 16, 17, some of them specifically singing about the Exodus and pull them together because they are rightly evaluating what took place during this Passover Exodus event. God showed up. It looked like we were going to be defeated, but God brought salvation. He delivered us from death. We left Egypt. We are backs or against the Red Sea. God brought another remarkable reversal. Everything about the Exodus screams the remarkable reversal of God. And Psalm 118 is just a beautiful example that encapsulates his ability and desire and love to do remarkable reversals in the lives of his people. So that's why they sing this psalm during the Passover. So think about it. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the crowds are rightly connecting this psalm to the one they perceive to be this David-like Savior who is going to deliver them. So they're looking back and saying, man, we need God to bring a Psalm 18-like king who can come and reverse our defeat and bring victory. We need someone who can come and accomplish the kind of 
awesome, remarkable reversal that God did at the Passover. We need this figure to show up. In comes Jesus, who's been doing things that seem to be indicating he might just be the one we've been longing for, and here he is. So we're going to reach back into Psalm 118, we're going to pull it forward, and we're going to apply it right to him. That's what they're doing right now in this moment. This is why they are shouting, Hosanna, save us now. Save now. Bring this salvation. They want the blessing of the King of Israel who comes in the name of the Lord. They want Jesus to save them. But this is what makes their quotation of Psalm 118 so ironic. There's something very ironic about their quotation of Psalm 118. One of the key points of God's remarkable reversal in Psalm 118 is not only that God transforms defeat into triumph, but that He does so in ways that we just absolutely do not expect. So if you go back into Psalm 118 and read the couple of verses right before the verse they are quoting, you read the psalmist as he says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, in that psalmist writing this down, he was saying as we were going about in the midst of our defeat, it was like there were builders around and they looked on us and they said these people are like, they need to be on the refuse pile of history. We're going to toss them out. They are like stones that builders rejected. We, says the psalmist, are like this stone. But guess what? In God's grand plan of remarkably reversing for the glory and the greatness of his name, the stone that the builders rejected, has actually become the cornerstone, this king-like figure who went from needs to be on refuse pile of the history is actually now the cornerstone. Jesus, in a couple of chapters here, is going to tell everybody this verse is actually about me. I am the stone that the builders rejected. The religious and religiosity of the day, they are throwing me out as though on to be on the refuse pile of history. But the stone that the builders rejected... I'm actually the cornerstone. The psalmist's point in saying this is to highlight that this is how God works. He is remarkable at reversals and the reversal on display before the crowd and before us this morning is this reversal that the king of Israel, who is the saving king, is about to accomplish the Hosanna cry of the crowd's heart, but is going to do so in a way that they cannot possibly fathom by dying a death in the place of sinners on a cross so that sinners might have the salvation Hosanna cry of their heart met in ways that they really need. They can't possibly fathom this. I think they come to grasp it because in five days' time, the crowd screaming Hosanna will be the crowd screaming what? Crucify Him. They catch the net in about five days' time. This guy is not going to save us in the way we thought he would. Jesus comes and says, your expectation for salvation, correct. The way the salvation is going to actually come 
It's not going to be what you think. The challenge for you and the challenge for me is, are we foisting on Jesus our expectations of what we think salvation should be like? Some of us struggle with bitterness in our life because we have expectations that we've placed on Jesus that we don't find in the Scriptures. And then when Jesus loves us enough to come and tell us, I am the King you think I am. I am the Redeemer you think I am. I am the Savior you think I am. But I am not going to rescue, redeem, and save you in these ways that you are expecting. I'm actually going to come and do something greater, and I'm going to do something better, but it's going to be in a way not you expect. For some of us, we don't like that. And it embitters us. And we stiff arm the Christ and say, if that's the way you're going to go about saving people, I don't want anything to do with you. That's what the crowd is going to do in the course of five days' time. Jesus is about to accomplish the Hosanna cry of the crowd's heart, but he's going to do it in a way that they just can't possibly fathom on a Roman cross. That's the remarkable reversal of the saving king. But notice that John the apostle isn't done yet. He wants us to see that closely tied to this remarkable reversal of the saving king is that King Jesus is the humble king. He arrives humble and he overturns expectations even in his humility. So that we cannot escape the remarkable reversal before us, notice that John immediately highlights how Jesus entered Jerusalem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us all kinds of information about how Jesus said, hey, go in, you're going to find this cold, and I want you to lay on blankets, and, and all these sorts of things. John just cuts to the chase. They're saying, Hosanna, he sat on a donkey, and he's done. You're like, oh, okay, I guess, you know what I mean? But I think what John is doing this, with his brevity, he's just helping us to see this expectation, reversing king, don't miss the point, he ain't rolling into Jerusalem on a war steed. He's coming in on a baby donkey. Like his feet were probably dragging the ground, probably had his kneecaps tucked up because he's a full-grown adult. Like this is just not what you would expect. If he's truly the king, he says, you would expect something entirely different. But what we get instead is the king of kings on a baby donkey. John says, don't miss this remarkable reversal. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written. He quotes the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, starting verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion is just a phrase that references the people of, of Israel. Fear not, God's people, you could say. Behold, your king is coming. And he's sitting on a donkey's colt. In a move designed to fulfill Scripture, as John tells us, but in a move that is also simultaneously designed to drive home the point that the crowd's expectations are being reversed right before their eyes, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a young donkey instead of this war horse. He is not about to bring defeat through a display of force. Rather, he's about to bring victory through humility. 
his victory is about to come through weakness. Like just think about what the cross is. The cross is a display of weakness. It's not a display of strength and power and might. The triumphal entry of this first Palm Sunday beautifully displays the strength of weakness. If you want to talk about overturning expectations, then this is what we talk about on the triumphal entry when we talk about Palm Sunday. Jesus is going to disarm the devil. Jesus is going to pay the penalty of sin. Jesus is going to crush death to death, not in the strength of might, but in the strength of weakness. And the invitation for us is to check our expectations because we so often follow the king who displays strength through weakness by going out and saying, thank you, Jesus, but I'm going to go out into my life and display the strength of might. Thank you very much. But to follow the king who displays the strength of weakness means that we follow in our own lives the king and display the strength of weakness in our own lives. Philippians 2.8 tells us that being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's through the display and the strength of that humble weakness that what? His name gets exalted above all names so that in the end every knee will bow and every knee will confess how does every knee come to bow and confess that jesus christ is lord through his display of strength on the cross or through his display of weakness it's weakness Friends, Jesus is the expectation-reversing King we need. And that challenges us because we often say, well, I have a King who I need to give me what I want. And Jesus comes and loves us enough to give us what we need and to not always give us what we want. He's the rescuing king who saves sinners not according to what we want, but according to what we need. In humility, Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross, all to accomplish the forgiveness of sin that we need to purchase the eternal freedom that we need to apply to our account the right standing with God that you and I need. That's what we see in the Psalm 118, Zechariah 9 king. So the question is this, point number two, how will I respond to this king? How am I going to respond to this king? Notice that in verses 16, 17, 18, and 19, that's exactly what John lays out before us. A series of responses. What's interesting is how people respond in so many varied ways to this remarkable, reversing, saving, rescuing, humble king. That's what John is laying out for us in these remaining verses. If you notice in verse 16, he shows us that some people just flat out fail to understand who Jesus is. 
Just flat out fail to understand who Jesus is. The Apostle John tells us there in verse 16 that Jesus' own disciples did not understand these things at first. So they're there watching all of this and they're just like, yeah, we don't get it. Like We do not understand what he is doing here in this, in this moment. Now eventually, John tells us in verse 16 that they would come to understand when Jesus was glorified, that is, after Jesus' crucifixion, after the resurrection, Holy Spirit comes. John 16 tells us, Jesus is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 14 and 15 is going to be to help you guys remember and piece all these things together. So he says, there was a point in time when we finally came to see that upon his crucifixion, upon his resurrection, upon his ascension into heaven, Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and we saw the picture was stitched together for us. But I'm just telling you, John says, self-incriminating evidence. In that moment, I was clueless. I had no idea how to grasp and grapple with all this Jesus King, humble, donkey, Psalm 118 kind of stuff. I just didn't see it. I failed to understand who Jesus was, the importance of the message that Jesus was sending in this moment. The point for you and me is this, is it is entirely possible to walk in proximity to Jesus. It's entirely possible to know about Jesus. To listen to the words of Jesus and yet still miss the message of Jesus. That Jesus is the expectation reversing king who can save you right now. That was the message that Jesus was sending when he came riding in a donkey. I will answer that Hosanna cry. But I'm going to save you not in the way that you want, but I'm going to save you in a way that you need you need that can happen for you and me right now this failure to understand jesus might very well describe your experience with jesus but do you know this that it doesn't have to be going forward today anyone's hope of coming to understand that jesus is the saving king who saves sinners is found in this piece of self-incriminating evidence here in verse 16 when John says, I, one of the twelve, did not understand. We failed to understand in this moment. The very man writing this gospel about Jesus was one of the disciples who didn't get it. But praise God that the time did come when the light of the glorified Christ caused John to see. This is my hope. This is your hope this morning. That you can come to see Jesus as the Savior of your need. Notice in verses 17 and 18, John moves on to another faces in the crowd. And he shows us that some people were curious about Jesus as the life-giving king. So some just flat out understand, fail to understand, like, I'm, I don't get it. Some people were starting to, to get it. They're curious. Who is this Jesus? Who is this life-giving king? Notice that the large crowd in verse 12 is the exact same crowd in verse 18. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, it's the same people in verse 18 where John says the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that Jesus had done this sign. The question is, what sign had Jesus just done that is making them go, we should probably find a little, a little bit more about this Jesus character. The sign is John 11. When Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. It's the last sign that you see in John's gospel. 
And it's this sign of calling Lazarus out of the tomb and raising him from the dead, John says. This is why people are like, yeah, we should probably go and find out a little bit more about this Jesus character. Because the folks who were with Jesus when he raised Lazarus, they were continuing to bear witness. They were going around saying, hey, we saw this with our eyes. We heard Jesus say, Lazarus, come out. And four days after being in the tomb, this dead man walked out of the tomb. We were there. We saw it. And as John says, they just continued everywhere they went. Bear witness. He's raising the dead. He's raising the dead. He raised Lazarus. Lazarus dead. He's come out of the tomb. And all the crowd, bigger crowd, is starting to go like, what? Who? Dead? Live? We need, we're curious. Help us. We need to find out more about this. They heard. So they pressed in. They wanted to know more about this king who could raise dead people. And that's the encouragement for all here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you are far from God. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, just, you're, you're on the fringe. Maybe you're unsure. Maybe you're doubting. Maybe the works and the mighty words of Jesus have drawn you near to Jesus, yet you're just, you're just still unsure. You're, you're wrestling with who He really is. If this is you this morning, here's my encouragement. Take heart. Take heart. Listen, Jesus is not put off by your questions. Jesus doesn't burn with angst at your uncertainties and doubts. Jesus doesn't look at you in the face, hear your question, and then turn His face and sort of cuss under His breath that He has to deal with you yet again. No, Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus is the friend of sufferers. Listen, he can and does draw near to men and women just like you. Listen, Jesus does not regret getting involved in your life. Have you ever wondered that? Here you are again, standing in front of Jesus again for that thing again with this doubt and this question and this frustration again. And that sort of just, this thought runs through the background of your mind. Man, I think Jesus is like really regrets getting involved with me. And the reason why we ask that question is because we often regret getting involved with some people. We open up our home, we open up our lives, we open up relationship pathways, and that person proves to be overly needy, and you're just like, oh no. Like, I regret having done this. When this person texts, when this person calls, you do turn your face and sort of cuss under your breath because you're like, I can't believe this person is in my life. They're asking and wanting and needing and needing and wanting and doubting. They're pulling so much from me. The question is, does Jesus regret getting involved in your life? If the answer is yes, then we all need to pack it up and go home. But we all know the answer to that question is no, Jesus does not regret getting involved in our lives. And if Jesus does not regret getting involved in our lives, that means there is hope for sinners, there's hope for sufferers, there's hope for the doubters, there's hope for the questioners, there's hope for those who are curious, trying to figure out who this Jesus character is, there is hope. Listen to Jesus. Just don't fall prey to the crowd's error. Remember, they were curious. We should go check this Jesus character out. But when they came to Jesus, what they did is they went like this. They reached into their heart and went and rolled out. Here's all the expectations that we want of our Jesus. And then they went and went 
shoved it right on to Jesus and go, wow, he doesn't measure up in so many ways. And so instead of taking their expectations of what a Savior should be, wadding up and kicking it out and submitting themselves before the Christ of the Scriptures, what they did was they took the Christ of the Scriptures, wadded him up and booted him out. Listen to Jesus. Allow him to flood your heart and mind with who he really is. Lastly, quickly, verse 19, notice that some people just flat out see Jesus as a nuisance and want nothing to do with him. See that in verse 19? That's where the Pharisees were at, the religious leaders. In Psalm 118, these are the builders that are rejecting the stone. They look to one another after seeing all this and they say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That's more true than they could ever possibly imagine. To them, Jesus was just an annoyance, someone to deal with. You tolerate Jesus. To them, Jesus was someone to be written off and shelved back onto the bookcase of history. They had made up their minds and decidedly said, we want nothing to do with a Savior like this. Thank you very much. So as we stand here on the front, of, front end of Holy Week, don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Don't miss that the exact same responses to Jesus then, they, they still exist today. Some of us are here struggling to understand. Some of us are here curious, but like, I don't know if he's going to measure up to my expectations. Some of us are here just like, dude, Jesus is a nuisance. Who is Jesus and how will I respond to him are questions that every one of us must answer. Is he a madman with delusions of royalty and nothing more that deserves to be written off? Or is Jesus the humble king? Is Jesus the savior king who five days from now will be crowned with thorns and enthroned on a cross so that he himself would bear our sins in his body and then we in turn be freed from our sins by his blood? Friend, what is the Hosanna cry of your heart? Notice I didn't say, do you have a Hosanna cry of your heart? I'm asking you, what is the Hosanna cry of your heart? What is the word Hosanna? It means save now. What is the save now cry of your heart? And then ask the question, what Savior are you asking to save you? Lord, I'm lonely. I need you to save me from my loneliness, but I'm going to run to the Savior of relationships. Lord, I'm lonely. Marriage has got to be the answer. I'm going to run to the Savior of marriage. Lord, I could use some more cash. I want to be saved from this place of being impoverished. I'm going to run to the Savior of money. The Savior of sex. The Savior of a home. The Savior of comfort. The Savior of just, I just want ease. The Savior of religion. The Savior of politics. 
we try to run and fix the save now cry of our heart in a thousand ways, hoping that this little s Savior will save us. But then you lift up your eyes. And you notice there's a strange Galilean carpenter riding down the aisle toward you. And it looks like he's on a donkey. And people are yelling, Hosanna. You're like, that, I've got that cry in my heart. And then you realize that the invitation of Zechariah to come and behold your king is the invitation to truly be saved in the only way that you need. The question is, will you behold your rescuing king or will you embrace a small s savior in the hopes that the small s savior can do what only the big s savior can do? Lord, help us to hear the prophet Zechariah as he begs us to behold our King. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts to behold? Would you open the eyes of our minds to behold? To see that Jesus alone is worthy to behold. He is worthy to be believed. He is worthy to be our big S Savior, period, full stop, nothing else to say. Lord, for sinners and sufferers, for doubters and for questioners, would you help us to see that Jesus does not regret getting involved in our lives? Lord, would you bring us to cast ourselves on Christ who does not cast away any who come to him. Lord, convince us that it is good and right and safe and true for us to come and cast ourselves on Jesus for salvation and for every other single thing in our lives beyond that. Holy Spirit, magnify Christ in our lives today from the remainder of this week until Lord willing we gather again it's in the name of King Jesus I pray amen